I'd like you to turn with me first to Matthew chapter 26. And we're only going to read a small portion of Matthew's Gospel here in this chapter. I just want to give you a little bit of a, uh, a background. Jesus has already been brought before the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, Annas. They want him dead. And they're beginning now to try him for his wickedness that they seem to think he was propagating throughout the land of Israel. And he stands before the high priest. And after a great deal of false witnesses and all kinds of accusations that were not true, slapping him around without him even being aware of who was hitting him, mocking him, making him to try at least, make him to blaspheme. They couldn't do it. And as Isaiah said, he stood before the shearers like a sheep, silent, not responding in kind. But when the high priest directly asked Jesus this question, it's found in verse 62 of chapter 26, the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is these What is it, rather, these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered again and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man. Jesus referred to Himself as the Son of Man continually through His earthly ministry. And here, He's telling the high priest of Israel that He is acknowledging that which the high priest has asked, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures? Are you he that was to come and sit on the throne of David? Are you the one who would indeed reign forever and ever? Are you proclaiming yourself to be that Messiah? And Jesus said, you've said it, buddy. The Son of Man. Now, Not everybody would catch that phrase as being of any great significance. But you have to realize that Jesus used it intentionally and he wanted to convey a truth that they would understand. The high priest would have gotten this. And Jesus, when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, was referring to himself as a specific personage that is described in the Old Testament Scripture of the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, turn there with me. Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of the last days. In a portion of that chapter, he talks about the one that we know of, as we refer to as the Antichrist, who has not yet come, but will be, I believe, very soon coming. And he says in verse 
13 of chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember what Jesus said to the high priest? You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referring to this prophecy in Daniel's wonderful book of prophecy. And continuing on, he says, He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There are so many passages in the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New Testament Scriptures that speak of this coming of the Messiah, this one who would sit on David's throne and reign for all eternity. He would be recognized as the king of all peoples, every nation. The Bible tells us that every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see in these passages that the Lord is indeed coming again. He came the first time to die on that cross. And when He said, it is finished, it certainly was finished. The work that He had come to accomplish came to a conclusion at that moment that He bowed the head and cried out to His Father, it is finished. Salvation had been paid for in full. It's a free gift. The writer of the book of Ephesians, Paul, the apostle, said it's by grace through faith that we are saved. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's nothing that we can earn. It's nothing that we can provide for ourselves through some kind of a payment or some kind of effort of any kind. It is a free gift of God. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus Christ plus the Book of Mormon. Not Jesus Christ plus the Jehovah's Witnesses books that they sell. Not Jesus plus Allah or Muhammad or Buddha. Hare Krishna. It's not Jesus plus Baptist doctrine or Pentecostal doctrine. It's not Jesus plus Presbyterian doctrine or, a feet or, or anything else doctrine. It's Jesus alone. Salvation comes through Him and no other. Cannot be added to, cannot be taken from. We need to understand that's the truth of God's Word. And He came in fulfillment in that first time of His coming of hundreds of prophecies that spoke of that first coming. And according to the Word of God, He's coming again. Jesus said Himself, you will see Him come in the clouds with great power. Now that second coming we refer to is something that's still yet to come. But I see, and I hope that you see, signs that He had spoken of that are lining up in this present hour to give us great great expectation in the fact that He is soon to come. Now, the church doesn't all agree with these things that I'll be sharing today, but this is what I believe the Word of God teaches. 
I base what I say strictly on what the Word of God says. I will refuse to create a doctrine that I have to make the Scripture fit that doctrine. I would much rather take the Scriptures and make a doctrine fit the Scriptures. And that's what I intend to do today with our study in this Word of God. So I've given you some background information. This is what's happening in the world today. There is trouble. There is all kinds of signs that are evident throughout the world that Jesus will soon be coming. And some of those signs, as he said in Matthew's Gospel, also in Luke's Gospel, are wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And he said those are the beginnings of birth pangs. Ladies, you know what birth pangs are all about. They don't start out too awfully bad. You think you're having some kind of a stomach problem. And then it happens again. And you realize, whoa, wait a minute, that's not my stomach. That's my baby. You're nine months pregnant. You realize, you put it together. That was a contraction. And then it happens again, more intense. And it happens again, more frequently and intense. That's what Jesus was talking about with regard to the birth pangs of those signs that he had mentioned. They will come with greater frequency and with greater intensity. And you look around, people. The world is being set up. The stage of the last act is already set. I say that because we can read in several places in the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures that give us indications that there are certain things that are going to be having to line up in order for the coming of Christ to be fulfilled. And friends, if you are willing to connect the dots, it is happening. Ezekiel, for instance, chapters 37, 38, 39, talking about the renewing of the people of Israel in the land. That has happened. But not only that, there's going to be a war that will result from their having come into the land. And Ezekiel mentions the names of nations. Persia, which is present-day Iran. He mentions Put, which is Libya. Cush, which is Sudan. He mentions Turkey. He mentions Russia. By their ancient names, people, those nations are forming an alliance even as we speak, and the one reason they're coming together isn't because they all agree with one another with regard to their religious faith, but it's because they want to take the spoils. You consider this. Russia, Iran, Turkey, and those other nations that I mentioned, their economies are tanking. They are in desperate need of resources. Israel, on the other hand, is one of the most prosperous nations today. And they are ready to send gas into Europe. Natural gas. They've got three trillion, what is it, barrels worth? a huge amount of supply in the Mediterranean Sea just offshore. They're already pumping gas into Egypt and from Egypt to Europe. The only reason they're doing it that way is because they haven't been given the privilege of setting up a direct pipeline from Israel to Italy, which is what they hope to do soon. That pipeline has been delayed, but the resources are there. And Russia and Iran are angry that Europe is going to take advantage of Israel's gas supply. 
Israel will continue to profit. The Nord Stream pipeline has been closed by Russia because of their war with Ukraine right now, but they don't want to keep it closed because they need that resource for their economy to grow. So I submit to you that there's an economic reason that they, all of them, will come together, put aside their religious differences, put aside their philosophical differences, but come together as a group of nations to invade Israel for one purpose and one purpose only, to take the spoil. And that's exactly what Ezekiel had said. You can't make this up, people. This is the Word of God being fulfilled in our present time. And that's only one example. There are many, many more. So connect the dots. Make sure you understand these are indeed the last days. Now, nobody can know when the Lord will come. Jesus himself said, No man knows the day or the hour. My Father only. And his Father has kept it to himself. He hasn't revealed it to anybody. Now, there have been some who have, through the years, said, I know when the Lord is coming, and they mark a date, and they say, all of you who follow me, this is a date that the Lord is coming. Well, that's absolute blasphemy. Don't ever, ever allow a pastor or any other teacher try to convince you that I know the day. On the other hand, this particular time of year, for me, and I say this, Not because I'm predicting anything. I don't want you to think I'm a date setter, okay? Right from the get-go, I want you to understand I am not proclaiming that Jesus is coming on any particular day, at any particular time, in any particular year. But this season, in the fall, there's one particular day that I am excited about because it gives me a greater sense of expectation that he is going to be coming. However and whenever he chooses to is not the question. But that particular day that I'm referring to happens to be next Sunday. It's called, for Israel, the Feast of Trumpets. Why do I say that? Well, because the feasts of Israel are very, very important feasts for the nation of Israel. But they also are very important feasts for the church. Now, the church doesn't observe those feasts as Israel does, but the church can understand that those feasts were shadows of something that will be revealed. For instance, the very first feast was in the springtime, in their first religious month of the year. They call it Passover. We call it Easter. Well, Passover was a Jewish feast. And it was a picture, a type, a shadow of something that would be fulfilled at a later time. And it was indeed fulfilled at precisely the right day, at the right hour of the day by Jesus when he offered himself up as a lamb, a sacrifice. Because it was prescribed on that day that a lamb had to be sacrificed at a particular hour of the day, on a particular day, and Jesus met that requirement to the day and hour. So he fulfilled the Passover in his willingness to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice. The other feasts that are associated with that, first fruits and also 
the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are all, both of them tied together with Passover, and Jesus fulfilled those as well. I won't go into any more detail about those, but there's one other feast that has happened chronologically in this year and does every year. It's the fourth feast that's known by us as Pentecost. It's the Feast of Weeks in the Jewish calendar. It happens 50 days after the first Sunday following Passover. And that's when the Holy Spirit came. And Luke tells us something very interesting about that feast. He said, when the day of Passover had fully come, the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. It was fulfillment. The system that they had put in place of worshiping God through those feasts, every one of those first four feasts were fulfilled precisely at the right time and in the right way by the right person. So there are three feasts left. Next one is a feast of trumpets. So the question is, will it be fulfilled? Well, he's doing pretty good with it so far. What is the feast of trumpets and why is that important to us? And how will it be fulfilled? Well, the only thing that we can say about it really, and it's speculatory, speculative, Paul tells us that the church will be taken out of this world at a specific time. He mentions that taking out of the church from the earth twice. First, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, tell us of what is known as the rapture of the church. The Greek word harpazo is a Greek word that means snatched away. And Paul says the church will be snatched away. Hapadzo. When? We're not told when. But Paul expected it even in his day. Because he said the first thing that's going to take place at that catching away is that the dead in Christ will rise first. The graves will be opened. The dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain, Paul is speaking of that event as though it were something that will take place in his lifetime. Now, he didn't know. It didn't happen in his lifetime. But it's going to happen. What Paul was saying is, we will all be caught together up in the air to be with him from that moment in glorified bodies. Now, the other place that I mentioned is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's there that Paul tells us, at the last trump. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, The trumpet will sound, and the voice of the archangel will be heard by all of the church. In 1 Corinthians, he says, it's the last trump. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a whole lot of understandings, misunderstandings with regard to that last trump. Some believe that it has to do with the trumpet blasts that are recorded in the book of Revelation. I I just refuse to accept that as a likelihood because those are trumpet blasts of judgment. This trumpet blast is a trumpet blast of great joy and expectation. The last trump would have to be the trumpet blast that signifies the last of the current year and the beginning of the next year. Feast of Trumpets happens to be a trumpet will be blasted 
at 6 p.m. This year is going to be on September 25th, 6 p.m. in Jerusalem. That starts there next day. That is the first day of the new civil calendar of the Jewish people. So it's the last trump of this current year. It's the first trump of the next year. But it is a last trump in that sense. Why am I saying all this? Because I want the church to be ready for what is an inevitability. We don't know when it will be. We don't know. It probably won't be this coming Sunday, but I'd love it if it were. And because I've seen the fulfillment of all those feasts up to this point, as I said, I have a greater expectation that the Lord's soon return will be manifest someday in the near future, and I'm hoping it'll be next Sunday. And that's part of the reason why I've chosen the topic that I've chosen today. And I guess I haven't really gotten to that yet, but I wanted to give you a little bit more of a background as to where I'm coming from with regard to this message that I believe God has given to me. So, He may be coming soon. I'm with Paul. I'm with what Jesus said. When Jesus said these things, that He talked about the last days, He told His disciples, keep looking up. Your redemption draws nigh. Now, there's a lot of things that are still going to happen before the events that I'm going to be reading about here this morning will ultimately be fulfilled. There's a lot of bad things going on in the world today, and it's going to get worse. I can guarantee you that, because the Word of God tells us that. Jesus said at that time, before His coming, that it will be so bad never would have been anything like it before and will never be afterward. It's known in the Word of God as the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel refers to this period of seven weeks that we call the tribulation period as a time when one-third of the Jews will make it through. And about a half of the world's population will be extinguished during that time. You think it's tough now. Things are getting worse and worse. But it's nothing like what's going to take place when the Antichrist comes on the scene. And so, when is that going to happen? I mentioned the Ezekiel War. I'm convinced that that's going to happen sometime prior to the Antichrist coming on the scene. There are other events, like the destruction of Damascus, the capital city of Syria. Isaiah talks about that. In one day, it'll become a ruinous heap. That hasn't happened yet. I suspect that that's going to happen sometime soon. And the way things are going in Syria, you know, Israel is bombing many, many times through the course of every week over the last several weeks, different areas where Iranian forces are trying to establish themselves within the borders of Syria. Israel is not ready to allow that to happen. And so they continue to bomb around Damascus and other places where they know supplies are being sent into Syria so that the Iranians can supply the Hezbollah with more missiles to attack Israel. Do you know that Hezbollah proudly announced recently that they've got over 150,000 missiles aimed at Israel? That's from the northern border. On the southern border, Hamas is being also provided with same kind of missile technologies that they are providing to Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. These are troubled times. 
But God will protect His people. He will. There's no question. They don't know that yet. They really rely on their Iron Dome, their Aero System, their new technologies that they've got with laser technology that are able now to shoot out of the sky anything that's coming in that direction. But that's not going to be enough to prevent 150,000 missiles from completely eliminating cities in Israel. But God is enough. And it will be God who does that, according to Ezekiel. He'll protect them. And then their eyes will be open. But again, when does the Antichrist come? Well, I think the reason the Antichrist hasn't come on the scene yet is because we're still here. Because the Bible tells us that we are a restraining force. And he will not be revealed until that restraining force is lifted. That means the rapture has to come first. Whether the rapture comes first, or the Ezekiel war comes first, or the destruction of Damascus comes first, we can't tell. But we know they're all preceding events to the rapture, or to the tribulation. And that tribulation is a seven-year period of time. It's given great detail to us in the book of Revelation. But after that, Christ will come. And He'll set His feet on Mount Zion. That's by Jerusalem. He's coming. And when He does... Listen to what Zechariah says will take place. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning with verse 3, says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. There will be many nations who will be coming against Israel at the end of the tribulation period. He will come as he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then they shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee. He's talking to his own people Israel. As you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come. He's talking about Jesus It is Jesus who will come and set His feet on Mount Zion. We see that in the New Testament Scriptures. Jesus is their Lord God coming in the flesh on the prescribed day that He is to reign in Jerusalem from that day forward. He says it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. There are going to be changes made when Jesus sets foot upon the earth. And the book of Isaiah is replete with all kinds of wonderful information that we have at our disposal to know what it's going to be like during that reign of Christ on the earth. The book of Revelation tells us that reign of Christ on the earth will last for a thousand years and then eternity, and He'll be continuing His reign throughout all eternity. But on the earth for a thousand years... And here is this word from Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, telling us when it will start, what will take place. 
It says in verse 8 of that great chapter, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and His name one. These are the promises of God's Word that we need to take very, very seriously because they are true. I was reading a headline in a very liberal online service. Nostradamus predicts, and it gives a series of predictions that are supposedly going to happen in 2023, according to Nostradamus. Well, he was an interesting individual, and he spoke a lot of things that seemed to line up with some of the events that have been taking place. So many people give him credit as being a prophet. But listen, he's no prophet. A prophet needs to be 100% accurate. Nostradamus certainly wasn't near that. Neither was Gene Dixon. If you're interested in following after them, you're following after falsehood. But this is the Word of God. And God's prophets are always right. Turn with me now. The book of Psalms, chapter 96. We'll go through these rather quickly, but they are so very, very important. The known chapters 96 through 100 as the royal psalms. I make a habit of reading five chapters of the book of Psalms every day. Starting from the first of the month, I read five chapters, and then the second day I read the next five chapters, and I do that throughout the month. So on the 20th day of the month, I always read these five chapters of the book of Proverbs that we have before us here this morning. I don't say that for any other reason than to say that these aren't the only chapters that speak of these things, but these five chapters are grouped together and they tell us something of great importance with regard to the reign of Christ on the earth. Psalm 96 begins with this word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among the peoples. The writer of Psalms is saying that this psalm is written for all peoples to sing new songs unto the Lord. We sang today and it was beautiful And it was wonderful to know that the songs that we were singing, as we sing them from the heart, were going up into the heavens, and it pleases the Lord to hear the voice of His children praising Him. And He is looking for us as His people to sing. I can't sing. Make a joyful noise. That's also scriptural. But God wants us to lift our voice in praise to Him. And He's saying that here. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In verse 3, He says, Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among the peoples. 
For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. He has a place that He refers to as His sanctuary. And I submit to you that Ezekiel tells us about that sanctuary in the last days when Christ will be reigning on the earth. And in chapters 40 through the end of the book of Ezekiel, you can find all that you need to know about the temple that will be utilized by our Lord in that time of His reign. His sanctuary will be a physical place that people will be able to go to. It's written in the book. But take note of the fact that in verse 4 he says, He is feared above all gods. Well, what does the writer of the book of Psalms mean by all gods? Every nation in that day had one or more gods that they worshipped. All of them were local gods, local deities. They made idols to worship their local deities. And they were many, 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 many gods of the nations. But they were nothing. Paul tells us that idols are nothing, but there may be demons that are behind those idols that are being worshipped by idol worshippers, and that is a dangerous thing. But here, he is referring to those gods that are being worshipped by all of those other nations around them. They're false gods. They are no gods. They are, they are nothing. And their idols are nothing but carved wood covered with molten metal. It's foolish for anybody to worship a God that was made by a man's hands. Paul tells us that. Isaiah tells us that. Jeremiah tells us that. God tells us that through all of them. He is the only true God because He is the one who made the heavens. And if you're interested in doing a study on who it is that he's talking about when he says He made the heavens, go to the book of Colossians and find out that it was Jesus who made the heavens. He has made all things, and He holds all things together by the word of His power. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, made all things. By Him all things were made. Nothing was made without Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. It says in verse 7, it says, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. A lot of pastors use this verse as a means by which they can ask for an offering because it says, Give an offering. And so they're passing out their worship plates, but they're not worshiping God when they do that. What the psalmist is saying here is, Give an offering. It is not a tithe. It is not a monetary thing. It is an offering of worship. In their economy, under the Levitical law, there were several different kinds of offerings. There were grain offerings. There were meat offerings. There were animal sacrifices. And various kinds of sacrifices were done based on that whole system of sacrificial giving unto the Lord. It had nothing to do with a monetary giving of your finances. That having been said, if you want to give, there is a basket out back. But that's not what we're here for. I have never asked anyone to give 
an offering. And I refuse to. If the Lord puts it on your heart to give monetarily, then you do it. That's wonderful. But I will not ask. I know the Lord provides, and He always has. But anyway, back to this psalm. Offerings unto the Lord. An offering of worship and praise to our God. Verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I love that verse. Have you ever worshipped the Lord in the beauty of holiness? Do you even know what that means? In John chapter 4, Jesus met up with a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jews were hated by the Samaritans. But Jesus came together with this woman. She had questions and He answered those questions. And as He was talking to her, she began to think, you know, and she said, you Jews worship God in Jerusalem. But we Samaritans worship, worship Him at this mountain, Gerizim. And Jesus' response to her was this, woman, there is coming a day when men and women will not either worship in Jerusalem or at Gerizim, but they will worship God in spirit and in truth. And I submit to you that this is the same thing that Jesus was talking about that's recorded here. Worship Him in the beauty of holiness, in spirit and in truth. You need to know the truth of God's Word, and the truth of God's Word sets you free to worship Him, to honor Him, to love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Verse 10 says, It say among the nations, The Lord reigns. The world also was firmly established, it shall not be moved, and he shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. You realize he's talking about nature will rejoicing in that day? Well, you don't believe that literally, do you? Uh huh. Yeah, I do. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the whole world groans waiting for that day of redemption. That's to come. Jesus said when He entered into Jerusalem on that day that we call Palm Sunday, remember as He was entering into Jerusalem, He's about to go to the cross. He's going there acknowledging the fact that they are saying He is the King. Because they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. They were expecting Him to come and sit on David's throne at that time. But He doesn't tell them to be quiet. In fact, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus on His way into the city and they said, tell the people to be silent. And Jesus' response to them was this, if they were to keep silent, the very rocks would cry out, because this is the day that the Lord has made. This is a day that was written in Psalm 18. It is recorded, and that is what He was accomplishing. And if the people were silent, nature itself would cry out in victory. And that's eventually going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. Perhaps this is just a simple Hebraic way of personifying 
natural things. And you, yes, you see that oftentimes in the Scripture, and I don't discount that, but I believe there's something more than that. I believe that nature will come alive in a way that none of us have ever seen before. They'll rejoice before the Lord. And then finally, the last verse, verse 13 says, For He is coming. Somebody say yes and amen to this. He is coming. And He is coming to judge the earth. It is for the purpose of bringing that final judgment upon a God-rejecting world. And once that judgment has been accomplished, then He will reign for a thousand years on the earth and we will reign with Him according to the Word of God. We'll be in our glorified bodies on the earth with Him and we'll be given some degree of responsibility in managing that which He is going to accomplish. He says He shall judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with His truth. Verse 1 of chapter 97 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. He is coming in righteousness and He will judge the God-rejecting world. His throne is the throne of David. It's promised in the Word of God over and over again. A promise to David by God, a covenant that God had made with this man that we know as King David. And He will not change His mind. A fire goes before Him and burns up His enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. By the way, if you're listening to any of these words that we're reading out of Psalms 96 and 97 and the rest of the Psalms that we might get to tonight today, there are many of these words that you and I sing as choruses. We worship Him with some of the psalms that are recorded here. Some of the words recorded in these beautiful psalms are words that have been written down by modern artists and put to modern music, and we sing them. So you may not know that you have actually memorized a good portion of God's Word through those songs, and this is one of them. We sing the song, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. They should be familiar words to you because you sing them when we come together to worship the Lord. He says in verse 6, The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. Visible, present, on the earth, tangible. He's there. He isn't there yet, but He will be. Verse 7 says, Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols, worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Another song that we sing. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of the saints. He delivers them out of the hands of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. What he's saying here is simply this. The righteous will be blessed as we live for Him now in this present age and also in the age to come. Rejoice, verse 12 says, in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. He is holy. 
He is just. He is righteous. He is king of all. Verse 1 of chapter 98 says the same thing that verse 6 of verse 1 of chapter 96 says, "Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory." And yes, indeed, there is victory that lies ahead for our Lord. The world thinks that he will not do what he has proclaimed. They're wrong. They can't change. They might not believe, but they can't change what God has said. The Lord has made known His salvation. His righteousness He has revealed in the sight of the nations. He made it known. Everyone on the face of this earth should know intuitively and they should know experientially this is the truth of God's Word. There has not been anyone upon the face of the earth who has an excuse. The writer of Romans tells us that in chapter 1 so gloriously. They are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the earth His handiwork. Their voice is heard. His righteousness has been revealed in the sight of the nations. Verse 3 says, He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. They are central to all that we believe. The nation of Israel is God's nation. That has never changed. And they are His people still today. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. I don't know why the psalmist didn't put guitar in here, but I place the word harp in a category of guitar. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, the word that's translated harp in the New Testament is a word in the Greek, kitar. They just put a K instead of a Q. So, as far as I'm concerned, guitars are in the Bible. Just to point, you know, Matt, I think you'll appreciate that. I know I do. Any guitarist would say the same thing. This is awesome. We'll be playing our guitars in glory. Much better than we can play now, by the way. And guess what? I'm going to be standing in line to learn from the master of stringed instruments. His name is David. Praise the Lord. All these instruments will be utilized in glory in that time. And what a wonderful time of rejoicing this will be. I don't know about you, but, you know, think about it. Numbered in the myriad of myriads. I I don't think we can number the numbers that are going to be present. There's more than just a few that we have here in this room. And we'll all be singing praises to the God of glory. Think of how beautiful that will be. It'll be maybe loud, but I think he's going to give us ears that will handle the noise level. You know, our, our limits today with the decibel levels that we can handle, nah, not going to be so in that place. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. 
And I'd better hurry to finish what I wanted to share this morning, so let's read forward. In verse 7 it says, Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. You think it's odd that he should say that the trees clap their hands? What about rivers? Again, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. People talk in these days about equity. They haven't got a clue. True equity is based upon righteousness and truth. And His Word is true. Verse 1 of chapter 99 says, The Lord reigns. Again, a repetition of what He said in chapter 97. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Well, what are the cherubim? I'm glad you asked. We may be here longer than I intended. The cherubim are angels. A particular type of angel. And they're introduced to us in the Old Testament... We find them especially in the book of Exodus where God instructs Moses to have a particular box made. And it is to be made of acacia wood. It's plated with gold. And upon that box is what would be known as the mercy seat, a solid piece of gold. And then atop of that mercy seat are two angelic beings who are facing one another on either side of this golden cover, and their wings are covering the mercy seat. That mercy seat is placed into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a very, very special place in a tabernacle that would be ultimately destroyed, but built in the time of Moses. It was just a tent that was a covering for a couple of different rooms and a large court. The court was for the people to enter into. Another room that was inside that tent was known as a holy place. It was a place where the Levites, the special tribe that God had set aside to worship the Lord in that tabernacle area, would be offering sacrifices in that holy place. But the inner sanctum, the inner room, was a 15 foot by 15 foot room that nobody could enter in except for one person, and that only once a year. The high priest could enter into that one room once a year, and that's it, for the purpose of offering up their annual sacrifice of blood upon the mercy seat, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's also coming up in just about a month. Let the earth be moved. In verse 2 he says, The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. He is holy. The King's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed judgment and justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. 
Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Moses, Aaron, Samuel, three patriarchs of the people of Israel. Moses you all are familiar with. He led the people through the wilderness. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And the Levitical priesthood was established by His words, given to Him by God. Aaron, his brother, became the first high priest. Samuel, a prophet that came on the scene much later, a man of God who was gifted by the Lord as a prophet and as one of the judges, the greatest of the judges. But take note of what he says about these three men. As godly as they appear to have been in the Word of God, guess what God says about them? They were sinners. They were in need of His forgiveness. And that's why He tells us in this psalm that we just read, they were forgiven because He says, you were to them God who forgives. I love that. If He forgives Moses and Aaron and Samuel, He forgives you and me as well. And He does through His Son, through the death of His Son on the cross, through the shedding of His blood, in fulfillment of that which was required Every year, once a year, He did it once for all. So there's no need for sacrifices anymore. The Lord our God is indeed holy, and we are to worship at His holy hill. I want to take you, before we read the last of these wonderful psalms, which is only going to take us a short while, but I want to read with you the book of Ezekiel, the whole book. But I'm not going to give you the whole book, I'm just going to read a portion of it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 43. Psalm 99 talks about the fact that we are to worship at His footstool. He is holy. He has a place in which He dwells. He is standing or seated in a throne where the two cherubim are by His side. That is not just about the heavenly experience. That is talking about the reality of what will take place on the earth during His millennial reign. I submit to you this portion of Scripture found in chapter 43 of the book of Ezekiel. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Those are descriptions of Jesus elsewhere found in the Word of God. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple that will be the temple that will be built during the time of Christ's reign upon the earth. By way of the gate which faces toward the east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Record that in your mind, in your heart. This is the place of my throne. Jesus is saying to Ezekiel in this wonderful vision, I have established my throne in Jerusalem at the temple that will be built during the millennial reign of Christ and Christ will be seated in that holy of holies Ever and ever. 
This is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet. His footstool, as mentioned in Psalm 99, verse 5. He's coming. He's coming to reign. He's coming to redeem all mankind. He's coming because it's been written of Him from the very beginnings of time. God made it His plan, His purpose, His goal. And everything that's happening in the world today is lining up exactly as it should for that return of Christ to become a reality. Finally, let's read together Psalm 100 and we'll close with this. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. That includes you and me, my friends. To all generations. His truth endures. Whether He comes this week or next or this next month, or next year, or ten years from now. Keep looking up. Your redemption does indeed draw near. And it's because He has said these things that we can have such great confidence in the fact that His Word is indeed the truth. The Word of God. Let us not leave this place today without saying, Thank you, Jesus, for your mercies endure forever.